well, I think I think that's probably the same for a lot of us, you know, because here am I also. Uh, I mean, I'm a, I'm a child of India, but I'm very much of you know of the of what you might call, I suppose you you could say the you know the the officer class, and uh, and in that sense, and yet at the same time, because of my military, because of my military background, I also can relate to the whole ethos of uh, of militarism and and the so-called you know. The, the warrior types in, in in India, which of course is is basically the basis of uh, it's not it's it's a very important element in Sikhism, the idea that these are people who stood up against uh, you know the oppressor, and they and they did that by 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 taking him on you know physically, and um, and indeed at the same time as you know you if you've embraced Sikhism is the whole idea of actually trying to reach out into into all communities and actually be accessible to all, which is a very nice feature of, of Sikhism. You know, no caste, um, no ideas of superiority, but brotherhood. I love this word that I use. You know, I, I've used it in the book, but I use it again. This word, baiband, you know, the idea of brotherhood. And that, to me, is very much the key of, of what, we're, uh, what we're talking about today, I think. Absolutely. I'll just close my the door so that so that my wife doesn't uh, get get uh, irritated by what I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have to deal it, with that it's too. Usually, it's a sports afternoon and Saturday here, so <clears throat> I'm big into rugby football. Ah, <clears throat> I see. Okay, so so that's interesting. So so that's your background, yeah. which is which is your interest here, and your you have an you have an, you have a um, you have a channel of information which presumably will reach. Sikhs, is that right? Yes. Or Sikh, uh, what would you call them, uh, U.S. citizens who are who are Sikh Sikh culture? Yeah. So some people are calling them Sikh Americans. Um, you know, I think that part of the whole thing about Sikhs is that there's this idea of sovereignty. Um, you know, that sort of stretches beyond national boundaries, and um, more and more, I'm feeling. And and I think that that's actually true of all human beings personally, that you know that bound the kind of national boundaries and identities that have been created, yeah. as, you know, are it's sort very of very interesting yeah. question. This isn't it? The whole question of assimilation mm. versus retaining retaining your identity. Yeah, you know, it's a big feature in America, isn't it? I mean, what you know, what is the good American? Is he somebody who who become, picks up all the American values? Right. Uh, or, or I mean, it's very interesting for me here in this country. Um, I've got to know Parmjeet very well, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm very fascinated by the whole movement there here of Sikhs who are, I think, very proudly Sikh, mm. but also they're actually very, very good at being good citizens. Right. And this is a different. It's the same for you, I'm sure. It's a different game. I mean, it's a very difficult balance to find. Especially, you know, and you yeah. have many. I don't know whether you have the same problem. I think you probably do. You have some communities who find it very difficult to assimilate and retain their culture. Well, you know, they feel that they're they're betraying one or the other. You know. Yes, and I think that um, for me, it's about framing all of human experience in terms of their sort of accessibility to living in a just world, and. In, and to me, the assimilation of people into a national identity 
um, is often an assimilation into that nation's sort of own momentum and its own values. It's not necessarily even a community in and of itself, because even within Britain, we have, or the, in the U.S., we have so many different people with so many different perspectives and, and whatnot, and, yeah, and yeah. sort of a monolithic yeah, famous... national identity is... Yeah. I, it's something that I'm suspicious of or skeptical of, you know, because it can it, be very dangerous. Exactly. Because, yeah, it can be very dangerous. Kind of the idea of of trying to be um, an all-American boy. Yes. You know, I, I and we don't. You know, it's, I mean, yeah, we, we also have this petty nationalism here too, mm. as you know. You've got the whole Farage's movement, oh, all man. the the particularly on the right wing, you know, which is which is very destructive to us and uh, is causing us. And I think there's also in America, too, there's a big debate about, you know, uh, to what extent do you identify with, um, uh, what should we say? I don't know. I'm really careful what I say, but, you know, American nationalism and British nationalism, it's very, and indeed in India, too. We're having, you know, I I keep big contacts with India. I just, I was there until when, uh, January, and, I'm very worried about the way Modi, Mr. Modi, is trying to create a Hindu identity, you know, which is which is uh, very scary, very scary indeed. And indeed, history is being, yeah. Anyway, there you go. That's that's our philosopher. Well, at least I'm, I'm, I'm delighted here we have that in common Absolutely. in the sense of how we... How we um, and this, this, you know, this project I've been doing here with with Parmjeet, it, it's been great fun. Just right. to, uh, and in a sense, I don't want to distort. Um, you know, Kipling was. This is a propaganda book. Right. I mean, Kipling did this. You know, and 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 I think we'll come on to that. And I've, uh, and yet underneath it all, there's a very powerful humanity which mm. comes out, particularly because of the terrible suffering that that the you know that these troops went through in the first war. You know, the idea of fight, of you know, fighting a foreign war, you know, it's a desperate, desperate situation they found themselves in. Mm. This is why, when you peel away the propaganda of these stories, and you actually get to a Sikh soldier describing what it's like to be in this hell yes. of the you know the Western trenches uh, in the First World War, and you realise that. They have no option. They have to accept it as their fate, and it's devastating. Devastating. It's a you know, it's a world in which there's no hope. They just hope they're not going to get killed, but they can't leave. They can't. They can't get anywhere. They can't even fight properly. They can't show their manhood. You know, they can't, and, and they're trapped because they've they've made a pledge. It's terribly, terribly. I find it terribly sad. The 
Historian and traveler Charles Allen was born in Kanpur, India, in the last years of the British Raj, both his parents having links with India going back over five generations. He first made his name as an oral historian with the BBC, focusing on the colonial experience with a number of radio and TV series, and such books as Plain Tales from the Raj, in 1975, and Tales from the South China Sea in 1982. He subsequently moved into more conventional history by writing about the British involvement in India with such books as Soldier Sahibs in 2000 and The Buddha and The Sahibs in 2002, as well as a number of biographies with a South Asian background, such as Ashoka, The Search for India's Lost Emperor in 2012, and The Prisoner of Kathmandu, Brian Hodgson in Nepal, 1820-43, to 43, in 2015. In Charles's 24th book, Coromandel, A Personal History of South India, he challenged some popular perceptions and cherished beliefs about the shaping of Indian history. Charles first began to write about his own family's close links with Rudyard Kipling in a selection of his Indian stories in Kipling's Kingdom, his best Indian stories in 1987, returning to the subject 20 years later to write the bestseller Kipling Sahib, Indian, and the making of Rudyard Kipling in 2007. He now returns to the subject of Kipling in providing the introduction to a reprint of Kipling's last Indian stories contained in The Eyes of Asia. As to his family links with Kipling, his great-grandfather, Sir George Allen, was the newspaper proprietor who brought the 16-year-old Kipling straight from school to work as an assistant editor on one of his newspapers, the Civil and Military Gazette of Lahore. Kipling worked on that paper for four years before being moved to Allahabad to work on Allen's much bigger paper, The Pioneer. He only stayed there for two years before moving to London and literary fame. However, India remained the main source of his fiction up to the time he published Kim in 1900. Uh, Charles Allen, welcome to The One. Thanks very much indeed. So uh, I first wanted to ask you what brought you to this project and what your goal was uh, in writing the introduction to this republishing of The Eyes of Asia. Yeah, I mean, essentially, um, my way into this really was through writing about uh, Rudyard Kipling. Uh, he's like me. He's, he was born in India, and, and he spent his first six and a half years. In my case, it was eight years in India. So he's very much, as I say, he, he's an Indian native in that sense, having been born in India. And that Indian childhood stays with him. Um, and and uh, even though he doesn't actually want to, uh, at the age of 16, he wants to be a poet in London, but actually he ends up in India. His dad finds him a job, and he ends up in, in, in Lahore, right up in the northwest uh, of India, in, in the Punjab. And so, uh, in a sense, <laughs> I'm very fascinated in, in this whole business of, of, of a, a man 
moving between two worlds, India and Britain, and that's very much how I've spent my life. I write about India in all various different ways, and I travel all over, over India, and so I'm very attracted to the idea, particularly the young Kipling. The young Kipling is a very brave guy. He breaks all these taboos of, he writes about race, in you know, a love between the races, between the Indians and Britons. He, he, he talks about sex for the first time. Hmm. He actually talks about things like adultery. Hmm. And he talks about the common man. He writes all these stories about, you know, the ordinary soldier, which nobody was doing before. So he breaks he breaks all these taboos. And I, I love him for that. And later on, he becomes a grouchy old imperialist, <laughs> you know. Um, but but uh, the young man I like very much. And, of course, here we are actually dealing with the old man. Mm. The old man, if I take him up to 1914 and the start of this terrible, you know, this war that nobody had any idea it was going to be, what it was going to shape up as, four years of hell on the northwest, oh, no, on, the, on the western front. Um, nobody had any idea how, how terri terrifying it was going to be. And Kipling, you know, he's a great jingoist. He wants, he's a great patriot. He wants... Britain to, as he says, you know, to, to whop the Hun. I mean, he's, right. he's very anti-German, anti pro-British, and he even more or less forces his son, you know, to join the, to join the army, age 17, and he gets killed almost straight away. And so, you know, it's a great tragedy for, for Kipling, his only son. And, you know, I mean, the fact is he was virtually blind like his father, he, and he should never have gone to, to soldiering. And he, his body is lost for some years. So Kipling identifies very much with the suffering of the troops. And this is something that, that he, he, he that comes out in, in, this, in, in, these, in this last collection of Indian stories. And um, was there anything in particular about working with a publisher on sick histories like Kashi House that attracted you to the project? Yeah, there's this very uh, Sikhism is, is 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 a fascinating phenomenon for me. It's not an an area that I knew much about as uh, growing up, or indeed in my earlier travelhood. But but really, I I made some very good friends later on in uh, who were Sikhs, uh, Sikhs living is still in India, and I I I I suppose I particularly came to admire a kind of person. And this is going to sound very kind of right wing, but <laughs> my family is a military family. Mm -hmm. My father, my brother, and so on. Both of them served in the. Uh, uh, my father served in India, and he was in the war, and so on, in the Indian Army. And my my brother followed his steps in a way by, by by joining the the, the British Gurkhas. These are Nepalese soldiers who fight with the British Army, and so it's very much in my blood. You could say the idea of of the warrior, and I respect those values. Mm. And one of the things that I like about Sikhism is this idea of shared brotherhood of man. Mm. I should say sisterhood as well, of course. The idea that um, this transcends all our different barriers uh, which we put up about race and religion and sex and so on. The idea that there's, that there's a common humanity there. And I like the way the Sikhs, you know, when first, the first gurus um, were defining themselves, it was more or less about survival. Mm. You know, they were an oppressed people. And, and yet, in standing up to their oppressors, they kept stressing, you know, that we are actually 
not just it's not just one religion which is better than another. You know, there's a common humanity there. Uh, you know, and and some of the features that I don't like in India, like the idea of caste, mm. the idea of religious superiority. You know, these are things that the Sikh will never will never identify with. Mm. And the other thing, if I can just say, is that my wife, I met my wife in, in, in Kathmandu, uh, and she had come out overland. Uh, you know, she was a young English lady. She was age 17, actually, when she started off. And I met her in Kathmandu, and, and she had enormous time for the Sikhs because uh, she, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't call her a hippie, but she was a world traveler. Mm. And the Sikhs in India opened their doors. They opened their gurudwaras, you know, and you could sleep there for free, and they fed you for free. And I'm sorry to say, maybe you could regard it as exploiting, <laughs> exploiting this hospitality. But that kindness and that warmth and openness uh, has always been a Sikh quality. So if you forgive me being a little bit pro-Sikh in this respect, <laughs> because there are elements in Indian society which are very, very exclusive. Right. Um, you know, I'm talking about caste, alas, you know, which is such a curse. Mm. And Sikhism opposed caste, um, and I admire them for that enormously. So it's a, it's a religion I can identify with, mm. even though I, I, I'm by no means a Sikh. But, but, but so, so the, I think that's what it's about. But also this question of manliness. Mm. Now, that sounds very kind of old-fashioned, but there is this idea of standing up, uh, and, and and not being afraid and and facing up to to, to reality, mm. and I the Sikhs and the Brits, you know, they shouldn't have got on. How was it? You know, the Sikhs when the British Empire was when the East India Company was busy and extending its control over the whole of India, the one body which really stood up to them, and they had the most terrifying eight or nine really fierce, first fiercely fought battles in the Punjab were the Sikhs. You know, the Sikh warriors were the closest that, 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 that the East India Company came to being defeated. And at huge cost, the East India Company won this series of battles. And as you know, they then took over the Sikh empire. They, they took over the Punjab. And there ought to have been a lot of enormous enmity between them. But in an extraordinary way, they came to respect each other. And they, the British immediately recognized the values of the Sikhs as warriors. And the Sikhs, dare I say this, they almost saw something that they had in common. Uh, and and they, they worked really well together. Uh, even though the Sikhs, as you know, the, a Sikh can be a very difficult person uh, <laughs> to deal with. You know, they will, they will, they will stand up to you and they will, they will speak their minds. But the Sikh soldier and the British officers got on incredibly well. Mm. And they developed it. They may even have taken it from the idea of the Khalsa, you know, the Brotherhood of the Sikhs, the Sikh army, you might call it. That quality went into the Indian army with the British and the Sikhs, this idea of, 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 of a warrior people. Mm. And they developed, as I said, I'm going to use this word, baiband, mm. uh, the idea of the Brotherhood. Um, and it's something, you know, you think of Shakespeare in this country, you know. I don't know if you remember, there's a very famous speech in, in, in Shakespeare's play, Henry V. Um, before the Battle of Agincourt, King Henry, you know, he goes among the troops in disguise and he hears all about their stories. And then he makes a kind of, he makes a warm-up speech, you know, and he says, you know, we band of brothers, whoever fights with me, he shall be my brother. 
You know, we, we'll, we're going to remember this day. Those of us who live, we're going to show our wounds and say, you know, these wounds I had on St. Crispin's Day, which is, which is the day they fought the battle. And that phrase, we band of brothers, is very much how I see what the Indian Army was about. Mm. And that's why it was actually a damn good army. Mm. It's the largest volunteer army the world has ever seen. And tragically, of course, come 1914, you know, it was the it was the Indians who volunteered and were and were eager to take part in the great battles on behalf of the British. And of course, tragedy it was a tragedy in a way. Yes, and and I think that there's a lot of uh, nuance in 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 those relationships in terms of you know the connection to uh, between the British and the Sikhs and and how much of that was. Um, brother brotherhood and brotherliness but also uh, I think that we it's very important to keep in mind um, the history of um, carrots and sticks you know coercion and um, and um, okay. <laughs> is it, do, uh, un, oh. unless we might disagree here but but um, in terms of you know and this is not just a sick uh, British issue but you know an Indian an Indian British issue in terms of you know the the offering of jagirs and land grants to to soldiers, and then the incentives of recruit of of promotions, etc., for recruiting people from one's village. Okay, right. Yeah, I I get what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> you're quite right. I mean, it was a very attractive. I mean, you know, if you're a farmer and you've only got a few acres, whoa, the idea of being you know being given a good salary and a pension and 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 being paid off with a nice bit of land is very attractive. Um, but it also appealed. I, I think we've, you've got to accept that it also appealed to the, you know, the military quality of uh, the, of, of, of the Sikhs who saw themselves as fighting men. Uh, I think you've got to agree it was an outlet. And and the other thing I want to stress is this question of the regiment. It wasn't so much. At least this is how I see it. It's not so much a question of loyalty to the British government in India, you know, these foreigners who are ruling over it. They joined a particular body of men called the regiment, you know, and, and their, loyal, their first loyalty was to the regiment. Uh, I, uh, some years ago, um, I interviewed a lot of British soldiers, and I remember one, one sergeant, he, he should have been given the VC, he's a British guy, um, and he fought an engagement in, in Borneo, as it turned out, which is a secret engagement, so we couldn't actually publicize it. He should have won the VC. And I said, you know, what are you fighting for? And I said, well, he, said he said, you don't understand. It's, it's about the love I have for my fellow soldiers. It's the regiment. I know that the man on my left and the man on my right, that they will die for me and I will die for them. And those words have always stuck in my head. And, and I think the idea of, you know, you, you, your oath was to your regiment. The first thing you, you swore on the flag, yes, it was to serve Queen, and, Queen and, and, and the British Raj and so on. But the loyalty was to the regiment. You couldn't let the regiment down. And so generation after generation followed, sons followed fathers who followed their fathers. I think you've got to accept that you know soldiering and the regiment was very important to a lot of to a lot of Sikhs, to a lot of Sikh men, and and yes, and now we look upon it, we say, oh, it's outrageous, particularly in nineteen you know nineteen forty seven. I mean, uh, if we go back to the you know the, the what the British called the Indian Mutiny, and which the Indian historians would perhaps call the first war of Indian independence. 
Now, who were the guys who came to the rescue of the beleaguered British in 1857 when regiment after regiment of Bengali soldiers mutinied and turned against their officers? Who were the regiments who actually stayed with the Brits? It was the Sikhs. It was the Sikhs who, who by joining forces with the Brits, actually saved Britain in India. Right. Now, you may not like it, but those are the facts. Sure, sure. You know, I can, think of, I can think of several engagements, you know, where it was just a few Sikhs and a few officers with them, you know, who turned back, who, who turned back the, 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 the armies that were fighting against them. So don't tell me it was, you know, it was, these were an oppressed peoples. The Sikhs did well out of it. Right. Okay, that's my position. Yeah, yes. No, and, and I think that that's... <laughs> I know a... that's not popular to say so today in India. That's okay. But nevertheless, look, look at the facts. Yeah, look yeah. at the facts. Well, I guess I just, <laughs> uh, you know, I, there's always so many different readings and approaches to things, but I, yeah. I think it's good to have a balanced yeah. perspective, and, and so I'm not uh, here to... Not here to argue yeah. with you, but um, but but if we get a chance, I I will tell you about one particular. I mean, what is so fascinating is, you know, I uh, when we get to talk about the First World War, um, and and why Kipling did this book, um, and and if I I don't know if I could move on to that, but but one of the reasons why Kipling got involved was that there were there were a group of American Sikhs, can I call them that, sure. in Canada and America. Who were actually plotting revolution against? You know, they, they <laughs> these were Sikhs who'd emigrated to America and to Canada, and there was a very strong group of them who were very opposed and who wanted India to be independent, and and were you could say plotting. And one of the things they tried to do was to was to contact their brother soldiers, their brother Sikhs, and actually write to them and say, "Hey, you guys, you're fighting for the, your oppression. Why are you doing it?" Right. You know, you should be fighting against your oppressor. So yes, of course, there were there, there was a very strong and valiant group of Sikhs who uh, we would call them in those days rebels. You right. could call them revolutionaries or traitors. But of course, they saw themselves and they were freedom fighters. Right, right. And I think that that's right. Exactly. It's it's important to look at these. You know, it's yeah. important to look at things from the top and the bottom. Um, yeah, I suppose. And the other thing is, history is never black and white. Sure. It's never black and white. You know, we, we try to simplify history all the time. And I do it, too. We almost unconsciously do it. You know, and, and so young Indians growing up in India, they have a very black and white view of the Brits in India. And similarly, we have a very you know, black and white view of what we were doing in India. Yes. And right. imperialism, imperialism is never justified. Right. You can't go to another country and boss people about and, and exploit them. That's, that's imperialism. Right. And you can pretend you're doing it for good reasons. Yes. Oh, you know, we're here there to bring civilization. But, of course, the bottom line is you're exploiting a weaker people. Well, I think that's, a, that's it's a perfect sort of segue to talking about Kipling. Um, because, yeah. as you said, yeah. you know, young Kipling is this... We have these um, stories of him wandering through the streets of Lahore in the middle of the night and walking into opium yeah. dens yeah. and da seeing dancing yeah. girls and... And, and sort of becoming very um, intertwined with the people of Punjab yeah. and, um, and, and, and this sort of rebellious boundary breaking that you refer to. And then, of course, the, yeah. the, the curmudgeon that you spoke of uh, that comes later. And so I wonder if you can maybe give us um, first tell us, you know, how important are I mean, just how important are Kipling's writings in terms of shaping the world and the West in particular's view of India? 
And then at the same time, what should we keep in mind in terms of the lens that he was looking through, you know, these ideas of imperialism, et cetera, when we read his yeah. works to kind of pick through and kind of garnish, you know, the history and then also be aware of his lens? Yeah, I, I think you've always got to be very careful to typecast somebody. Yeah. I mean, it, it's true, you know. You think of George Orwell, he calls him, what does he call him? He calls him a, a gutter patriot. Mm. Um, you, know, a, 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 you know, he's the kind of worst sort of imperialist. And in a way, this is true because part of Kipling is saying things like, oh, take up the white man's burden. Right. You know, and this kind of thing. And part of him is, you know, is 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 is, is as racist as you can get. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting to look at, for instance, Kipling's view of Islam versus Hinduism. Mm. He was an enormous admirer of Islam. He liked the strength of Islam. He liked the straightforwardness of it. Mm. He could identify with it because it was a monotheistic religion, you know, where there was one God. And, and, uh, but the paradox of that is as much as he admired uh, Islam, he always called God Allah, you know, in mm. all his books. He always refers to God as Allah. But on the other hand, you know, he despised the Hindu mm. and he called him effeminate. And why? Well, the reason is that uh, at one time India had been ruled by, you know, by Muslim rulers and he saw them as strong rulers. And, the, uh, and Hinduism, he, he saw as in some way subversive. I mean, who right. were the guys who actually le led the campaign, you know, led the opposition to, to, to the British in India? It was the Bengali Muslim, uh, sorry, the Bengali Hindus, mm. the type, you know, these are the intellectuals of, of Bengal and Calcutta who sort of began the first um, you know, idea of, of opposing British rule in India. And so he saw them as subversive. And so there's always this kind of uh, love and hate go together with Kipling, very much so. You know, I love my country, I hate the Germans. Mm. You know, I, 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 I love Islam, but I hate Hinduism. And, and, and the Sikhs, of course, come more or less in the middle. He, he admires them enormously because of their manly values. Uh, and so, so, so he, he, he gets away with it there. I see. And, and so I think, you know, this is true of Kipling all the time. You know, you've really got to pick and choose them a bit and then try to get apart from the stereotypes that he was uh, to me because some of his material is, is wonderful and very right. humane. And, you know, he writes about the ordinary peasant in India. Um, it's really interesting at the time of the the time of the great uh, what celebrations to celebrate Queen Victoria's Jubilee. He's asked to write a poem about this and he says well you know i'm just he pretends he's an indian peasant you know he's plowing his fields and he says i don't care about this great white queen over the water all i care about is where the next rains are going to come from where's my crop going to come crops going to come from you know how am i going to feed my children and he says you know that's all you know can i have i got enough cows to turn into to to till the fields and i like that aspect of him He's very much for the common man. I like him for that. I once heard a, a historian describe this sort of the imperialist and the racist elements that we find in his writings as almost his tough exterior shell, and that ultimately, uh, internally, he did have this sort of humanity and soft spot that, that did see kind of the humanity in all people and, and had a kind of a... It, it, it's always sort of at, at play. They're sort of at play with each other throughout his work. 
Would you say that that's... Yeah, I think it's really interesting when you look at... The, who are the two great heroes in, in Kipling's work? Well, one's this guy called Mowgli, right. and the other one's a guy called Kim. Mm. You know, these are two lost boys that, you know, one's, one's abandoned in the jungle, the other one's a bit older, but he's abandoned by his parents. And in both cases, well, we're not quite sure what about Kim, but these are boys who have actually been ab- abandoned by their British parents, and who are they loved by? They're loved by, well, in one instance, by the animals of the jungle. You could say he really meant Indians. Uh, or in, in the other case, he's loved by the Indians who surround him. You know, it's the Indians who rescue this boy in both in both Kipling and Kipling's Kim and in Kipling's Mowgli, the Jungle Books. You know, yeah. It, there's this this orphan boy that he see, identifies himself with, I think, and because as a child he was surrounded by the love of Indians, Indian servants who were much closer to him than his parents, right. and that's true of me too, incidentally. Mm. You know, the love I received from. Um, Dare I have to use this word, servants? Mm. We, we had an institution called the Ayah. I had a nanny. Okay, the love that my nanny gave to me as a as a child was was unstinting. But my parents, I didn't see them that much, you know. Um, and this is common to many many British. So I, there's a there's a kind of unspoken reason why he falls in love with India. I think in that way. And so, but he's still a white man. You right. know, he's still a white man, part of the imperial. Uh, uh, tyranny, you could say. It's it's a really fascinating yeah. dichotomy, I think, and and um, and 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 this humanity is really a lot of what we see, I think, reflected in these letters. Well, actually, both of these things are at play in the letters that we find in in the eyes of Asia. I'm just wondering if you can give us a little overview of what the work is and and um, how you see it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's talk about these. So these are Kipling's last stories in which he writes about Indians reflecting their feelings. Uh, but let's remember it's a work of propaganda. Mm. Now, what? If just the, the background to this is that in 1914, the only troops who were more or less ready to fight was the Indian Army. So they were shipped over as quick as possible. And within six weeks of the op- opening of the war, they'd been thrown into the battle uh, on, on the Western Front, into the trenches. And so for the first year, 1914 into 1915, the end of 1914, for the first eight months, they suffered enormous casualties on the Western Front. Mm. And it's from that period that, that Kipling um, you know, begins, to get, begins to identify. Now, initially, like everybody else, she's got this romantic view, you know, his romantic view of the British, you know, uh, of, of the war, that it's going to be a very quick war and we're going to defeat the Germans, you know, and he's, and, uh, oh, um, you know, it's, uh, he, he's going to, uh, it's, it's, he has a very simplistic view, and of course, so do the Indian troops. No one has any idea what it's going to be like. You know, um, you know, for instance, he writes, this is one of his little short poems, for all that we have and are, for all our children's uh, fate, stand up and, and take the war, the Hun is at the gate, mm. and, uh, and he's happy to sacrifice his son, and but within weeks, he's, uh, he's suffering the loss of his own son and, and the Indian dead are, 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 being, uh, in, are in their thousands. Mm. I mean, we're talking about 4,000 in one particular campaign, mm. and, and it's mounting up. And so many of them, of course, like his own son, the bodies are never recovered. They're blown to bits by shells you know, and buried in mud of the, of the Western Front. And, um, but Kipling wants to help. 
you know, he wants to help the war. And what happens is that he's summoned one day by actually, you might call him the head of propaganda. At that time, they didn't have it, but actually he was also the, the head of what later became MI5, the Secret Intelligence mm -hmm. Service. Um, and he said, look, can you help us? We've got to convince America to join the war. How can we do that? Let's, can you write some of your stories? And in particular, we've also got this group of troublemakers, you know, in, in America, these Sikhs and others who, who are nationalists, and, uh, you know, they're trying to foment troubles with our troops. And we've actually captured a, a young Indian in France, and his leg, he, he, was, he was trying to get to the Indian troops, and his pockets were full of leaflets mm. telling, the, telling the Sikh soldiers to mutiny. So we've got to have some propaganda, because this is about propaganda. Can you write a some propaganda. And then this uh, general, he shows Kipling these letters that the, British, that the Indian troops have been sending home. Now, so there was a kind of censorship going on, and this is quite normal in war. You, you want to make sure that you don't give away any secrets, and so the letters are read. And, but these are being read to see if they had any subversive element. Mm. And the astonishing thing is that there wasn't any subversive element or minimal what the Sikhs, what the, and of course, what the soldiers were writing about, these Indian soldiers in their letters home, were trying to disguise the fact that they were in this terrible war. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, when Kipling copies, he tries to get ideas from these letters, and he writes about four soldiers, one's a Sikh, one's a Muslim, uh, and a couple of others, one's a Rajput, a Hindu, and they're writing letters home. And um, so, yes, there's a lot of propaganda in it. Yes, everything's going well. And then Kipling, the human, humanist, mm. uh, takes over. So gradually, gradually, he starts to write about the horrors of the war, mm. which is in these letters. And, you know, the awful thing in these letters, and I've read these letters myself, because in the, in, in the, in the museums here, we've got a collection of these letters, and they're heartbreaking. And you know why they're heartbreaking? It's not because... It's because these guys know that they're, they're trapped. They know that they've taken an oath. They've taken an oath to serve the king emperor. They've taken an oath to be loyal to their regiment. And the phrase is in India, we've eaten the salt. We've eaten their salt. Right. This is a kind of ceremonial idea that you, if you eat somebody's salt, you, know, you, you, you are you, honor-bound to, to not to betray them. So they all say, yeah, it's dreadful. We're hating what's happening here. We know you're going to die. You know, um, the, there's no way out of it. We can't even fight properly. We're just trapped in our, in our trenches. And every so often we go out and they machine gun us or, and they shell us and so on and so on and so on. But all we can do is to stand and fight for our honor. Mm. Izzat is the word yes. that comes up again and again for our Izzat. And this is heartbreaking, you know, that the, these troops fighting for a foreign king that they in a foreign country, in a foreign war, in which they had no business to be there, uh, and yet they're going to stick it out. And it, it's heartbreaking. So that's the element that Kipling manages to put into these stories. And they're very funny in bits and so on. Uh, and I wonder whether I dare read you a bit just to give you an atmosphere of what it's like. So let me, this is... Um, one of these stories um, is is written by um, uh, th this is a Sikh soldier. He's been wounded. 
He's been very badly wounded, and he's been evacuated to England. And unbelievably, he finds himself in the Dome in Brighton. Now, Brighton is a seaside town on the south coast. And in the past, uh, um, a, a ridiculous building was built there for, uh, for the Prince of Wales, uh, pre, an early Prince of Wales in about 1820. And it was modeled on an Indian temple or a Muslim temple, you could say. Uh, and so it had a great big dome and so on. It was full of golden ceilings and chandeliers. And in the biggest room, they had hundreds and hundreds of, uh, of the wounded uh, lying on, on beds in rows. So this is where this guy's writing from. And he's fought in the Sikh, he's in, in, the, in a particular Sikh regiment, and he's a corporal, and he wants to write to his brother, uh, and, and he wants to explain to him how terrible the war is. But he has to be very careful about it, of course. But eventually he kind of, he talks about the French, and he talks about the French customs and so on. And he, I mean, this is, here's, I'm going to read you a little bit about Kipling, the propaganda. Propagandist. He's saying, well, this is the, he's pretending the Sikh is writing this letter. He's dictating it to a, to a to British man who's writing it down. And he says, Franceville is a country where the women are not veiled. Their marriage is their own choice. Um, they don't pilfer. They tell the truth, etc. So, so essentially, he's trying to that's a bit of propaganda. But then he goes on and says, I want to tell you about the war. This war is not a war. It is a world-destroying battle. All that has gone before this war in this world till now has been only boys throwing colored powder at each other. No man can imagine it. What do you or the Mormons or anyone else who's here who in your country know of, of war? Uh, when the ignorant in future speak of war, I shall laugh, even though he be my elder brother. brother. Consider what things are done here. This is a world where the very hills are turned upside down, with the cities upon them. And he who lives through this, when he comes home, he will be a giant. And then he asks, I mean, you get the feeling, you know, he really is being honest about this terrible war that he finds himself in. And it's very moving because, you know, you can see. I'm going to end you one more thing. Yeah, I joined to fight when I was young because I've eaten the government's salt. I must stay here till I am old. I am discharging my obligation. But when all is at an end, the memory of this will be but a dream. And he ends in a most moving way, you know. He says, I pray to the Guru to bring together those of us who are separated. God alone is true. Everything else is but a shadow. So that's Kipling really getting into the heart of it. And, and so for me, it's those bits that make this a work of literature. Uh, and make these four stories a very moving experience to, re to, 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 to read. Agreed, and, and it really harkens sort of images, that, that idea of boys uh, throwing color at each other. It, it brings images yeah, isn't that, that we funny? see of, yeah, you right, think of, of the, holy, don't you? the French and the <laughs> Polish uh, cavalrymen uh, in their powder blue coats yeah. riding into machine gun fire and, and, and sort of this whole new world. It's, it's a really... Um, yeah, it's a really uh, moving and, and heartbreaking uh, image that we get. Um, well, I think we're coming up to our, our time uh, our, our time to finish. And um, Charles, it, it really has been like absolutely an honor and, and a pleasure to speak to you about these, this. And, and despite our, 
our little moments of contention, I do hope that you would consider coming back on the show one day to perhaps uh, discuss these types Very of topics good. Good. further. As I say, I, I've drawn such strength, both not only from Sikhism, but from, from my friends in India. And uh, there is so much that we can learn, you know, from, yes. uh, from India. And I don't know if I dare, I want to say thank you, but may I also end with, uh, with uh, three words, yes. which is Satsri Akal. Satsri Akal. Well, thank you so much, and we'll we'll speak to you again. Goodbye. All the best. Be well. Thank you for listening. Of course. It was a real pleasure to have Charles Allen on the show. Our conversation was really fun, and I loved hearing his perspective and his words on Kipling and this uh, broader history, and particularly really appreciated his reading of uh, the, the letter from the sick soldier home to his family, which is a, a moving one. Of course, this is a really complex issue in the history of the Sikhs and the history of uh, the British Empire in India. And it really forces us to ask questions uh, in terms of you know, what that relationship really was. I loved how um, uh, Charles brought in this perspective of the fact that there were both uh, Sikhs and, and soldiers that fought um, for and, and alongside the British and saw their own interests aligning with the colonial powers, as well as uh, those who maintained a rebellious uh, position towards the empire, and that that was a, at a constant play. And um, I think that that's, these are things that we're going to continue to uncover and discuss. And I'd really like to call out to you who's listening right now to participate in that conversation. You can get online. You can find me on um, Instagram at shebid.one, shebid as well as Twitter at uh, Shabid Singh. And you can also email us at podcast.theone at gmail.com to offer any insights, ask questions, um, share sources, perspectives, critiques, etc. We really want to hear from you and we want to make this a conversation truly because as I shared in the beginning of this show, I'm learning alongside you and I'm just really fortunate enough to uh, be able to talk to some really um, fantastic personalities and uh, uh, intellectuals and and characters in this uh, broad discussion and bring it all to the folks who listen. So yeah, please feel not only welcome but encouraged and, and readily just, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see any and all messages that come my way and happy to include them in this broader discussion. Um, as some of you may have seen, if you are paying attention to uh, whether you know Canadian politics, uh, the Sikh world, 
uh, Sikh politics in general, there's been um, controversy in Canadian media recently about the portrayal of Sikhs in the context of the uh, Khalistan movement and characterizing uh, Jagmeet Singh, the NDP, the New Democratic Party uh, leader who will be running for uh, prime minister against uh, Justin Trudeau in the future. And the language and descriptions of Sikhs uh, using words like extremism and terrorism um, very cavalierly by uh, some of the media um, and participating in what I think is a poor legacy of the painting of um, not just Sikhs, but uh, many communities that are seeking to assert uh, self-governance uh, and control in the face of oppression. And um, it's obviously an incredibly uh, big discussion with a lot of valid uh, questions and critiques that we've touched on already a little bit, but are going to continue to talk about as we move back into history. We'll also have conversations with folks about issues facing Sikhs now and how the history is relevant to the modern day. In that uh, effort, we're going to be talking to a Dr. Jasjeet Singh uh, from the University of Leeds, who did a study on basically asking whether or not there were, in fact, violent uh, extremists involved with these uh, Khalistani activist groups. And you'll have to tune in next week uh, for the next episode to really get a, a granular, kind of deeper discussion into this subject. But suffice it to say that um, the current media climate uh, around Sikhs is one that is ugly and does hearken to some of the otherizing that did take place in the lead up to 1984, which doesn't mean that I'm saying there's some sort of a, an attack on Sikhs coming. It just, it just contributes to mentalities that otherize groups of people who are um, visibly different looking than the sort of quote unquote accepted norm of a citizen of a of different uh, of a country like Canada. Um, we're also going to be speaking to uh, Gunita Kaur, who is a researcher at Stanford University, who collects verbal, uh, with a team of researchers, collects oral histories of partition, and we're going to be talking to her about. Um, some of those stories, those oral histories, as well as some of the broader material realities that contributed to partition, the politics around it, and how those broader circumstances affected the uh, immediate lives of the people that lived through that tragedy. So I think we're going to have a couple of really amazing episodes coming up. And uh, really would love to, again, see your participation. If you have questions about these uh, issues that are coming up or comments or sources that we should be paying attention to in the lead up, please, please, please uh, contribute. I'd love to hear from you. One thing before I go, uh, please do go to 
Apple Podcasts. You, there's a link on the website at theonepodcast.com. Uh, go to Apple Podcasts. Please um, rate the show with the star system that they have, as well as write a review. The more reviews and the more ratings that we get, um, the more it spreads the word. And I'd really love right now, unfortunately, if you look up Seek History on Apple Podcasts, um, this show doesn't even show up. And I, I think it deserves to be in the uh, in the conversation, at least when you search for uh, Seek History. So, yeah, please go ahead and do that if you support the show and you want to see it uh, get to a larger audience. And also, you can help us out by sharing about the show on your social media, tagging me, um, and I'll always help boost that signal. And uh, it lets me know that you're paying attention and that you're part of the conversation. And I'm always looking at what people who follow me and who I follow um, are talking about and what their interests are. And um, yeah, I'm always open to conversations and new ideas and just a, a, a growth of knowledge. Um, before I go, I'd like to thank a few people. I'd like to thank my wife who has helped produce this show since the beginning, uh, helping make sure that we dot all the I's and cross all the T's and preparation uh, for the show and, and publishing it. And I really um, am thankful for that because I don't have that kind of mind and she helps me stay on task because um, she has that kind of an organizational mind. And uh, it's really special to have a partner that supports your passions and kind of knows knows where you um, you know you need uh, help I'd also like to thank my dear friend Sadna Singh who has helped uh, with the production in terms of the sound and mastering of this show he showed me how to use the software that I use and how to set up the microphone that I have etc and I'm really thankful for that as well um, thank you to Jasic uh, whose link you can find in the description here, who has created this uh, really cool theme song for the show. He made it from scratch, uh, put his time and energy into it just out of, uh, just on a me asking him, basically. And I'm super thankful for that. Um, and lastly, everybody who has, you know, retweeted uh, any of my, my posts and shows, who's sent me messages, told me they liked it, um, listened to it, and told their friends, etc. Like, I'm really thankful to you. And what I really want to get across here is that this is um, a show that is really trying to um, spark a regular conversation that revolves around uh, the issues that Sikhs face in the world today, that uh, humanity faces in the world today, and uh, a proactive, positive, uh, and, and yet critical approach to, to politics, to history, to culture in the Sikh lens, in the Sikh context. And uh, I, I'd like to thank everybody for being a part of that. So really, this is your show. This is something that I do out of pure passion and love and fun, and um, it's been a really great ride so far here on this this fourth episode. And so hopefully it just 
keeps moving and growing and we can all be a part of that that growth so thank you so so much and uh yeah looks like we're ending a little bit earlier than usual today so uh, you can cram in more extracurricular podcasts if you want a recommendation to learn a little bit more about the relationship between um, soldiers and the process of recruitment, etc., in under the British uh, Raj, specifically in the case of World War One, there are some really good podcasts by the BBC with intellectuals from India, um, as well as descendants from those soldiers, uh, and that's a great place to look um, if you just look up uh, BBC uh, podcasts on the World War One experience of Indian soldiers if you just google that you'll find it I can also put some links up in the show uh, another great project to look at is uh, the Empire Faith and War project which is all about um, oral histories and and uh, the story of Sikh participation in the a great war and their exposure to Western culture and the cross-pollination that happens there as well as the incredible hardships that they face and the unfortunate kind of uh, disregard of the memory of those soldiers in both the British and the Indian context as they were at once seen as uh, agents of empire by Indians and in, in its move towards its own nation and um, and uh, conversely as uh, Indian foreign soldiers by the Europeans who they fought for. But uh, yeah, there's a lot to that story and it's really fascinating and worth checking out. So go ahead and do that. All right, I'm actually done this time. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Okay. Hey, Charles. Great. Incredible. Thank you. It was a bit, it's, it's quite good that we should actually differ because there's nothing worse than people just being polite about things all the time. And we did it in a good humor, so, uh, and it's important. You, I'm glad you made that point because it's sometimes, you know, the interviewer disagrees with everything you say uh, and you think, come on, come on. But uh, it's important that people do see things differently. Otherwise, you know, we'd, we'd never progress in terms of just having a bland view of life. Very good. Well, I'm going to quickly get back to my rugby game. Thanks now. Keep well.